Okay, so we talked. Is okay. So we talked about um, the third jhana, and uh, that you know characterized its primary nimitta as that sort of very exquisite, uh, tender and lovely peacefulness. So that's what's really char- characterizing it, and pointed out. Uh, at several at several stages now and and point out again that you know that uh tender and lovely peacefulness and that uh, the exquisite of exquisiteness of it is is a very refined place it's a very refined realm it's a very refined state it's a very refined texture and again if you're not sure if it's definitely peaceful maybe you've been there before maybe it feels like this is peaceful this is equanimous uh it might feel very deep the refinement is is the thing uh, that you sh- one of the things that that tells you you you've moved deeper. Now, refinement means more than just karma. So certainly, when you move from PT, which ha- can have a lot of waves in it, uh, to something like that, there's there's a calming that's for sure, and the peacefulness. But by refinement, again, I would I would use more the analogy of the the, the different kinds of cloth. One cloth um, can be quite coarse. If I, if I, my jeans here, the the cloth is quite coarse there. Um, A refined cloth has actually, in a way, it's got less fibers in it. It's got less material in it. There's less substance to it. Okay, so this is trying to kind of articulate or pinpoint what what we mean by refined. So uh, it's almost gossamer-like in its refinedness uh, at this level. Things are getting really, really refined. It's more than to say it's more refined is more than to just more than to say just that it's calmer. It is calmer, but its uh, its texture is very, very uh, refined in that sense, um, like a refined material. And uh, so, some of you, you know, I don't know. There can be states of very deep relaxation, and some of you may even have experiments a little bit with like sleep sleep yoga practices dream and and in between dream states and there's states uh, that are very peaceful there's really not much happening. the mind is not moving anywhere, but compared to something like the third jhana, they don't have that refinement they're more they're thicker they're more kind of velvety uh so can can be helpful, etc. But when we talk about the peacefulness of the third jhana, we're really talking about a very refined quality, and so uh, that's part of also what what helps with the discernment. Okay, but today I'd like to go on and talk about the fourth jhana. And again, every time we move in the teachings or progress in the teachings, just a reminder about pacing. So um, we're we're going on in the teachings to the fourth jhana, but what's your pacing? That's the more important question. Um, where's your playground right now? You're the playground of your learning ed, the playground where you're spending most of your time marinated, marinating, exploring the elements of mastery. That's what will re- really help, rather than certainly z- not zipping through at the pace that I'm going through at, uh, and which will even get faster in the coming days because I've got some medical appointments, etc. But... Um, so really, really the encouragement to, again, discern and 
attune and be attune your whole being and your practice to your your sense of your and with us in dialogue your sense of y- your playground uh, of your learning edge and that's where you hang out that's where you have your fun that's where you work and play and marinate and etc um okay but the fourth jhana let's let's go back to the buddha and he says So he's gone through jhanas one, two, three with their, both their kind of more technical descriptions and then each one with their simile, uh, with the lotus ponds, etc. We've been through that. And then he says, after the third jhana, then he says, and furthermore, with the... <laughs> there's some translation things here, so let me just think I'm going to... With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, he enters, he's describing a monk here, he enters and remains in the fourth jhana, which is purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. He sits, the monk sits, permeating the body, again, permeating, with a pure, bright awareness so that there is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. So, and then his simile is just as if a person were sitting wrapped from head to foot with a white cloth so that there would be no part of their body to which the white cloth did not extend, even so, the practitioner sits permeating their body with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of their entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. So that's his description of the fourth jhana. Um, Technically, the jhana factors are just two now. Um, Ekagata, which we've had in every one, this with one thing prominent, that's uh, how I'm translating it. has one, one thing is prominent. The mind is uh, gathered around and in and with one thing prominent. And that one thing prominent is uh, the prime limiter, which is ac- technically it's upeka. And upeka, we've been talking the last few days, is equanimity. So technically, uh, at least in the commentaries, etc., and, and the Buddha, the two, the two jhana factors here are ekagata and upeka. So one thing prominent and equanimity. We talked about equanimity a little bit already. We'll talk about it a little bit more today and then also perhaps even a little bit more as the retreat goes on. But if I had to find the, the sort of what I think is the most helpful and accurate English word that encompasses the experience here and points us in the right direction, I would say stillness. I wouldn't actually, there is equanimity and that's important, etc. but I would say stillness. So that's the kind of almost overwhelming, uh, what, what strikes one almost overwhelmingly is one is almost um, transfixed uh, in and by uh, a, a, lo- a tra- extremely refined, translucent stillness. That's the, the texture and the experience. So talked about refinement with the third jhana, it's even more refined. And again, that's 
that's a really important discerning factor of am I moving in the right direction here or, 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 or do I need to shape this a little more or have I kind of gone off on a little bit of a sidetrack. So it's really, really refined and it's kind of uh, so refined like this cloth now is translucent. It's so subtle, so refined in its texture, the, the substance of the space that one's in that, uh, that it's as if it's translucent. But actually, it's, it's also a very bright space not for everyone, not always, but very common at this point to have a, a white light. That and that white light is the stillness. The stillness is the white light. Technically, I would call it a secondary nimitta, like we've talked about before, and this white light can come up earlier. But that white light, still, uh, it's almost breathtaking white light of stillness. Um, usually it's a secondary nimitta. Sometimes some people can have it's very pitch black. But I think I think more common is is to have the the, the bright white light there, uh, kind of as the stillness mixed with the stillness. Uh, there. Technically, it's a secondary nimitta, but probably by this point, organically, it's quite mixed, um, so that it is the stillness. The light is the stillness. The stillness is the light. Um, this light again. I think we touched on it before. I say it again. I, there's a brightness in the mind. And in a way, that brightness is just a kind of mm, sign, signal, manifestation, reflection of the kind of m uh, brightness of presence at that point, the aliveness of the mind. That's one way of understanding what's actually happening at there. It's a reflection of the, 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 the sort of uh, energy in the mind of, of being present, of being conscious. And there's something, so when we read, I don't know how, how did it sound to read the Buddha's description? Does it sound maybe less appealing than the other ones? Yeah, it's a little less, more what? Yeah, I'll come back to the confusing bit. I will come back to that because I think it's actually a bit confusing. But I think a lot of people might hear it and say, oh, I don't know, I like the lotus pond business and, the, and, and all this like, you know, upwelling of happiness. Um, but there's something, so again, I want to translate it into experiential terms. There's something almost stunning here, bre breathtaking. It's really like one feels like one th this, this still light, this very, very refined still light. Uh, it's almost as if one is, again, in another realm, breathing the air of another world, to uh, quote an old poet. In fact, it has... Somewhere or other, a few times in the Pali Canon, the Buddha gives it the synonym, the nickname, the beautiful. It's called the beautiful. And um, so, you know, hopefully this helps at least gi give, give a bit more s sense than something kind of like, mm, maybe it sounds a bit disappointing. Um, <coughs> and again, as on other occasions, like all the other jhanas, he refers to it as an escape. Nisaranam that we talked about the other day. Um, the Buddha talks that way about the jhanas at times, and this is also a sense we can have in it. Once you're in this space, it really can feel at times like one is in another world. I'm, I'm in another world here, and that world is an escape from all the pleasure and pain and all the shakiness and all the uh, complexity and difficulty of uh, the world of the senses. So there is this one way, uh, 
that the Buddha taught it, and one way of experiencing it is in a dualistic kind, as an escape from this world, in a dualistic kind of uh, relationship or comparison. Uh, this is a better place, escape, escape. And we can have that sense. Um, this other realm. And, like with the third gentleman we talked about this, there's this possibility for the after effect of that experience to spill, after effect on perception, to spill out onto the world and color our sense of the world so that the essential nature of things, the essential nature of this world that we all agree on and feel that we inhabit is, is perceived to be essentially stillness. So it's the same, the same process as it was perceived to be essentially peacefulness, now essentially stillness. Um, and so there's the dualistic conception, a, du a dualism with the world, duality with the world is an escape, and it's a, it's a much better place to be. There's that kind of thrust, both of teaching and experience. Then there's the thrust of here's an experience, and it opens my eyes, opens my senses and, and my felt sense of what this world really is and what the nature of this world really is. So it's much less dualistic because then the world becomes, uh, can be seen as being truly in essence this luminous transcendent stillness. Much less dualistic. And as we talk with the third jhana, there's a third possibility taking from the Buddha's teaching uh, where he emphasized all the jhanas as perception attainments on the way to pointing something uh, out about the nature of perception, about the malleability of perception, about the dependent arising, and thus the emptiness of all things. So you could see it seemingly dualistically, seemingly non-dualistically, and in a way that transcends both because it understands the dependent arising of the perception of duality or non-duality, perception or uh, the dependent arising of this or that. So all this is really, really important when we come to not just understanding insight, but also understanding where are we going with the path? What are we aiming for? What is liberation? And what does, what does our path kind of uh, suggest to us about our relationship with the world? And what, what kind of relationship and stance and view of the world does an awakened being have, a liberated being? Do they see it as something to escape from, never to be reborn again into this world? And there's a kind of dualistic conception or other possibilities. So uh, it kind of might sound like a bit of a technical point at, at this stage, but it, it a lot ends up hinging on this, about how we want to live, about how we treat the planet, about uh, our, on our sense of awakening, all of that. We'll come back to that. In the fourth jhana, the breath stops. One is no longer actually, as far as one can tell, breathing. Um, so if you stay, if the breath is your primary object and you're actually staying with that all the way through, this will become very, very clear. Um, the breath gets more and more subtle um, and subtler and subtler until it eventually there is no breath. 
You think, or you might notice it, so to speak, out of the corner of your eye if you do another practice. So how is it that we don't die then? I, I don't know the answer to this. Um, m I mean, I assume we're just breathing very, very subtly and there's such a stillness in the being at that point that we don't need to move barely any any oxygen. But maybe other people who know more about biology have better, I don't know. Well, uh, yeah, that's my. One does continue to breathe, but it's not. Technically, the sutta say the breath stops, um, and m most teachers would say the breath stops. And I think you would be hard pushed to, even if breath was your main object, to actually find a perception of the breath there. Uh, so, any, um, you know, any. Technically, the, the perception of the breath stops. Here. My assumption is you're basically somehow still breathing, but at that point because of the stillness and whatever is hap happening, the amount of actual oxygen that's moving and okay to uh, sustain the organism for sometimes what can be you know, quite you know, long periods um, is very small. So I don't actually know what's going on. It's not that important, actually. It's, it's neither here nor there. just thought I'd mention it. Um, the chitta, though, is what it's what, what's more. The chitta is really captivated and transfixed by this translucent, very, very refined stillness. This uh, this sense of this um, beautiful, beautiful realm of stillness. And that again, it's still a rupa jhana. It means it's still, as the Buddha says, the pervading the whole body. This luminous stillness is pervading the whole body. The body has become that. Um, so the chitta is captivated and transfixed, and again, like the uh, other jhanas we were talking about, once you've got quite a bit of experience with it, uh, in and out of that jhana, then then you might begin to to feel like, oh, now I actually have to kind of learn how to uh, develop the steadiness of my focus to stay steady on this really, really refined frequency, this really, really refined luminous texture. So, as always, sometimes at first it feels like effortless, and then afterwards you start to realize, oh, there's subtle work and play to be done here. And one of them is just, maybe, maybe for some people, can I just learn to stay with this very, very refined stillness? Another thing that can happen experientially at this stage is the kind of the felt center of the chitta, the felt center of awareness can drop. Um, and it might have dropped already in, in the second jhanas and third jhanas. So some people experience the center of the PT often around their face or throat. And sometimes some people experience the center of the happiness around the heart chakra around there. Sometimes when you get into the peacefulness, it's sort of lower in the belly. And sometimes with the stillness, it can, be, it can feel like it's even lower than the, the, the bum. Sort of it's down, sort of if I'm sitting on a chair, somehow under here is the center of my awareness can feel like. Um, this is a completely secondary phenomenon. So don't, you know, again, don't latch onto that. For some people, this is what they notice. Oh, there's this thing. And then they use that as a kind of indicator, barometer of which jhana they're in. Um, not a very good idea because it's a secondary phenomenon. It's not reliable. We want to be really clear, as always, what's the primary nimitta here? This is what's telling me what where I am if I'm, if I'm wanting to map it. This is what's discerning between jhanas. So that, that's actually quite important. I'm, I'm mentioning it as an, a thing you might notice in your experience. If you don't notice it, no problem at all. It really doesn't matter at all. 
And but if you do notice it, careful that you're not then latching onto that as the primary, uh, your primary indicator. So, I don't know what Jason was referring to, but I also find the Buddha's descriptions a bit confusing and puzzling. So he said something like, let's find it again. He said, with the abandoning of, with the abandoning of, and I said pleasure and pain, you could also say sukha and dukkha. As with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, that's this particular English translation, the Pali is somanasa domanasa. Um, so with the abandoning of all that, but also with the earlier disappearance, so something had been abandoned earlier, uh, the monk enters and remains in the fourth jhana. So I wouldn't spend too long on this, but I, I will spend a little bit on that. Um, the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, what could that be? And why is it coming up now anyway? Something's disappeared earlier. It could be, could be um, the earlier disappearance of piti and the hindrances. Piti as elation and the hindrances as distress. And they dis excuse me, the hindrances disappeared in the first jhana, the, the piti disappeared uh, in the third jhana. So could be related to that. Or, and probably more accurately with these Pali words, Somanasa and Dhammanasa, um, they kind of, it's, it's a bit complicated, but they, they may more refer to the, um, the distress when one kind of actually sees samsara, that sees the, f the fact that one's living in a world of impermanent things and even pleasant things are impermanent, etc. And there's a kind of distress of the renunciate um, in, in that. Um, the elation is when one realizes there's a path and has confidence that one can follow that path. I don't know. I've never heard a meditation teacher dwell much on this. Um, and I'm certainly not going to. It's just when you go into the kind of scholarly thing, there's a bit of a debate. It's like, well, what's he talking about here? And why is he suddenly introducing these terms that he hasn't used before? Um, I don't think it matters too much. The other phrase, abandoning of abandoning of pleasure and pain with the abandoning of pleasure and pain. Now that's slightly odd as well because you could say with the subsiding of pleasure and pain, but abandoning is something we do deliberately and the Pali word is pahana, which is also what the Buddha uses when you abandon like a, un, a unskillful ethical behavior, you abandon this or that that's un, unwholesome, unskillful. So. I don't actually think it matters, but what it, what it could be pointing to is what we talked about yesterday when this question came up a couple of times about equanimity. So if I abandon, means if I deliberately let go of um, clinging to pleasure or pain, and clinging can be pushing away as well in my language, clinging, pushing away or pulling towards me or hanging on to pleasure and pain. In other words, if I abandon the push-pull. That's something that I can do deliberately. I deliberately do that. Um, actually, in this case, in the way I would understand it, I'm not even completely abandoning it, because if you remember what we said yesterday, actually there's a whole spectrum here, really, really uh, subtler and subtler levels of push-pull clinging. So if I kind of abandon them a lot, but not quite all the way, 
then what I'm going to get, what I'm going to end up with, following on from what we said yesterday, when there's less, less pull, p push, pull, then it attenuates the Vedana. The very pleasantness and unpleasantness eventually just attenuate, and they become neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So the dominant Vedana becomes the sort of neutral one. Because I've abandoned, not so much the pleasure and pain, but I've abandoned any reactivity, or I've abandoned a lot of the reactivity. So you it actually gets, as you say, confusing, and why is he introducing this now, and etc. Because it seems to suggest another way of going into the jhana through playing with this push-pull and everything. So two things. One is um, about that, okay, so pleasure and pain uh, decrease, pleasant and unpleasant decrease, and one's left with neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Um, but what one can say about the neither pleasant nor unpleasant that one's left with is it's very, very, very nice. Um, and if it's not, something's not right. It, it's, not, it's not the fourth jhana we're talking about. It's very nice and very enjoyable. It's really, again, it's an improvement over the third jhana, and it's felt that way and it's experienced that way. And it's also somehow a kind of neutral Vedana. So that's one thing to bear in mind. The second is, and possibly more important, is so all this talk about abandoning pleasure and pain and earlier disappearance of elation and distress and, and what the different possibilities of that might mean. There's a whole scholarly debate here and people think like one particular sutta has got mistakes in it and they look for the Chinese parallel and da -da -da. it doesn't matter. What I Basically, um, I would say, it basically says there's equanimity. And that's all, that's all we need to worry about, I think. Um, and that's probably what, yeah, I think that's all we need to worry about. Remember, we were defining equanimity yesterday when it came up in the Q&A as not an on-off switch, not a black or white, I have it's there or it's not, I have it or I don't, but a spectrum. To the degree that there is equanimity, to that degree there is the uh, reduction of the push and pull. There is the reduction of clinging. So equanimity is a spectrum, and another way of saying what that spectrum is, is it's a, it's a spectrum of decreasing push-pull, decreasing clinging. Make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah? So I think, I think that's all we need to really understand here. It's pointing to a state of deep equanimity. As I said, it came up yesterday. There's different ways and different contexts in which the Buddha talks about equanimity, and it's a really interesting subject. This fourth jhana is what the Buddha would call equanimity based on singleness, in contradiction or in complement to what on other occasions he talks about equanimity based on multiplicity. So we've got equanimity based on singleness, equanimity based on multiplicity. What's this singleness and multiplicity of phenomena? So you've got equanimity based on many, f in, in other words, equanimity in relationship to many phenomena happening, many things occurring in the senses. And this fourth jhana is not that, because everything's pretty much disappeared. And there is just this translucent, refined, beautiful, white stillness, bright white light stillness. It's just, so it's an equanimity based on, there's nothing else happening, it's just that. The body, all the rest of it is just that. So it's an equanimity based on singleness, you, un you understand? Versus equanimity based on multiplicity, which we touched on yesterday. An example was when the Buddha talks about the eight worldly conditions, 
praise and blame, pleasure and pain, success and failure, and gain and loss. Um, and then Victor was asking about the word equanimity. We could say we can have um, here's those conditions or those opposites, and we can have equanimity in relationship to those uh, perceptions. There's the perception of praise and blame. This person's telling me I'm wonderful, this person's telling me I'm an idiot, whatever it is. Um, and the mind can have equanimity in relation to both. So what that means at that level, it's a more, it's a very important, but it's a kind of more superficial level of equanimity. What that means is, and we talked about, is equipoise, equi, equanimity, means equi, equin, from, I'm guessing, from anima, equal feeling towards both. I'm not like getting super excited and glad when this person praises me and then super depressed or angry when this person uh, blames me. Um, there's equipoise, equal feeling, whatever we want to say, uh, towards opposites. So it's not like I like this and I, uh, and I don't like that, I prefer this, I, uh, or I, I get excited about this, or elated about this and distressed about that. You understand? in relation to multiplicity of phenomena. Cl clear enough? Yeah. Um, <coughs> but, again, as I pointed out yesterday in, in the Q&A, we can have deeper levels of equanimity. So, for example, and following on the example I used yesterday, I think, um, the state of the vastness of awareness. Was that yesterday? We've talked about that, though. So when the consciousness opens up and... Um, because of the openness of the consciousness and because of the way one's practicing, one basically is like letting, letting everything just belong to the space, that vast space of awareness. And after a time it might seem like the, the bird that was just singing. It's just coming out of that silent awareness and then the sound just disappears back into it. And one has that and the, s the body sensations and the thoughts and the rest of it. They're all just emanating from this kind of what starts to feel like a, a, a mystical, divine, uh, forever lasting space of pe peaceful, transcendent, peaceful awareness. And things just arise out of that source, mystical source perhaps, and disappear back into it. And seeing that, and then my job as a meditator at that point is just let them come and let them go back, let them have it. It's not mine. Let, let, let the space contain and let all these uh, phenomena belong to the awareness. And you can, I don't know if you can hear, in that, what I've just described, there's, there's, a, there's a relationship, one's practicing a relationship of let it be, let it come, let it go, let it be. Can you hear that? Yeah. So really beautiful way of practicing, extremely fruitful way of practicing, very, very, a uh, lot of potential there. Um, not that difficult, just uh, it's something that with, with setting up the practice right when just staying with it and again and again once practicing that relationship, let it belong to the space, let it come, let it go, let it belong to the space. And then the very mystical beauty of that space starts to help you let go. It's like the space itself is not doing anything, but the sense of it, it's almost like it can do the work. It can do the work of just being there, holding things, mystically being a source, and uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call a, a resting place of, of phenomena. And it's almost like the, the, the space does the work. Technically speaking, 
you're you're engaging a certain way of looking, you're engaging an insight way of looking, which is just letting be, letting go, letting go, letting go, which technically means less clinging, less push and pull. Do you, do you understand? Less push and pull. And that just takes the whole thing deeper and deeper over time. And it might... Um, uh, it might be that it starts to deepen so that the ugly sound and the beautiful sound start to feel like they lose their associated Vedna. Exactly what I was saying before starts to happen. The pleasant, unpleasant starts to fade into more uh, just neutral phenomena. That neutrality may be impregnated with um, this mystical divinity, mystical silence, the mystical nature of awareness, but it's not in the, in, in, in the particularity of an individual sound that it's pleasant or unpleasant. They've all got that, even the ugly sounds. Do you, do you, yes? Um, <coughs> and so it can deepen, uh, the equanimity there can deepen, um, and it can deepen, again, I think we mentioned uh, in the last few times, um, it can deepen to the sense of one taste, which I mentioned in relation to the third jhana. So everything in this, if just follow this example of the vastness of awareness, everything can begin at some point to have all these phenomena, all the sounds, all the uh, sensations, all the thoughts, all the whatever comes up, um, feels like, again, its true essence, its true substance is the same. And that its substance is, in this case, mystical, divine, um, lasting forever awareness. Um, so there's a kind of oneness of substance that emerges there. And the opposite, where at a more superficial level of equanimity, we were equanimous in relation to two things that were opposite, praise, blame, pleasure, pain, etc. Because everything's one substance, the opposites kind of lose their meaning because they're the same thing, they're the same substance. They're no longer opposites anymore. It's all, in this case, divine awareness, the awareness of God, whatever you want to call it. Does it make sense? And there are many, many other possibilities that, that function in the same, in the same, they unfold in the same way. A similar thing could happen with, with a kind of mystical love or a mystical compassion or all, all kinds of possibilities. Really, really lovely, very available, just we just need to set up practice in the right way and, and follow it, and follow it. Um, and lovely as it is, it's still not the end of the road, and nor is it the, deep, uh, the deepest end of equanimity. Because I think, as I also mentioned yesterday, the sort of limit of equanimity that's possible, um, there are no objects that are any more even arising, because the fading has not just faded the pleasure and the pain, the pleasant and unpleasant Vedana, it's actually faded any sense of any object or any phenomenon or any sensation as well. So there are then in that ultra deep equanimity, no objects, things, sensations, phenomena in relation to which a person can be equanimous. So there's a, s there's a strange paradox in the depth of equanimity that the truest equanimity can't really be gar regarded as an equanimity because it, there's nothing there to be equanimous about. Anyway, here we have in the fourth jhana an instance of equanimity based on singleness in, in, like in complement to, in, in addition to other instances where the Buddha talks about equanimity based on multiplicity.
So, I think it's mostly true to say, let's say predominantly true to say at this point, in the, in the fourth jhana, there's a kind of, if you check there, what's the emotion? I think that the, the most likely answer, and the most accurate answer, the most answer that's most prevalent would be there isn't an emotion. The emotions have been pacified in that state. There's an absence or a pacification of, of emotion. Uh, let, let's say a bit that, that and come back, come back to that, qu maybe qualify that statement. Um, so this is interesting, you know, and again, this subject of emotion as human beings, and I said it's one of those subjects that I don't think there's any end for us. There shouldn't be an end for us as human beings of our exploration of emotion. Uh, even just in our conception of emotion, let alone what we do with emotions and how we relate to them. Um, but here, you know, what happens, what can be very common actually for human beings, and we don't get a lot of help in our culture with this, is that it's, very, it's quite common for people to be actually afraid of their emotions. Um, I'm, I don't, if a strong emotion comes up, I'm, I'm really not confident that I can tolerate it or be with it, that I won't end up being a puddle on the floor or a nervous wreck or out of control or, or wha whatever it is. Um, and so people relate around that fear in different ways. And, and it's only because in our culture we rarely get the training to really work well with the heart. And you know, can we, I, I, to me, Dharma practice should be, over time, broadening and deepening the capacity of the heart. We can hold a lot of emotion. We can hold intense emotion. And, and the grief at what's happening in our world, this is hard to bear, hard to hold. And it may be that um, for many people, that's one of the reasons why, for instance, species, I don't know if it's true, but maybe species loss and climate, climate change and species, I used to call it species extinction, I think a better word I read, uh, is actually species extermination, mass species extermination, that the, it's just too much grief to bear. And so people avoid it. And so if you look at what's most viewed every day in the newspaper, the climate change article rarely makes the top 10 etc. I'm not going to go into that now, but um, the, or, or a personal grief, and find just some ways, or, or whatever it is, or, or joy. Sometimes, you know, and we've talked about that bandwidth of happiness, that for some people it's like, well, okay, that's enough now, can I move on to the karma one? Um, and do, can we hold that much joy? Can we hold that much energy of, of piti? Can we allow it to flow through us? Can we hold that much grief? Can we hold that much? Is there such a thing as skillful anger or frustration in ways that can be skillful that are really big? All this. So to me, a, a huge part of the Dharma path is actually uh, broadening and deepening the capacity, the holding capacity of the heart. I've, I think that's a really, we get very little training for this in our culture. But in addition, it's also, um, there's the possibility of of developing through Dharma practice, you know, what we've emphasized from day one today, this um, sensitivity and refinement so that our, not just our range of intensity, but also our range of kinds of emotions we're even aware of. 
um, or that we notice or can tune into uh, grows. And then the beauty of hav- having that extended palette um, in, our, in our life and, and then from which to relate to others and our beloveds and the rest of the world and ourselves and art and the rest of it. To me, that's also really, really important. But there is, as I said, sometimes for a lot of human beings in our culture, there is a kind of, to some degree or other, there's a fear of one's emotional life. I'm okay with this kind of range, but if it gets kind of too much over there or too much over there, I'm really not sure that I'm okay. I'm really not sure I will be okay. Um, But there can also correspondingly be, for, for people, some people, a fear of the absence of emotion maybe even the same person at a different time. And sometimes, and it, you know, wha- wha- so there's an absence of emotion in the fourth jhana, you could say. And sometimes that can sound, well, I'm, I'm not sure I like the sound of that. Or one has an idea that can't be healthy. Um, and sometimes that idea about that state, and it's just a temporary state, um, the idea about it is, is maybe coming just from ideas that one one is sort of are woven into one's view at the moment because of what one's working on. So I remember, you know, I, I started meditating and I think I very briefly told you, kind of went a little nuts for a couple of years. Um, and part of um, my rehabilitation was um, g- getting into psychotherapy, etc., and getting, getting really... Uh, interested but really helped w- with my emotional life which was either um, kind of way too extreme without my understanding it or um, or just kind of cut off from certain emotions. So I got a lot, lot of exploration and opening with the emotions and, and working with that. But then I feel like in the view it would be very easily, I could have very easily gone into the opposite view which is if, if the emotion's quiet, then that must be a, su- if the emotion's quiet at any point, then there must be a suppression. Well, that must have unhealthy long-term consequences if you do that kind of thing. Authentic being needs to have emotion, and it's probably difficult emotion because that those are the more authentic ones. Um, so these are the kind of views, and they're actually not uncommon. Um, so there can be, for some people, a fear of emotion. There can be, for other people or the same person at a different time, a fear of the quietening, a fear of the absence of an emotion, of emotions. I, you know, interesting just thing to check out. Um, having said there's an absence of emotion here, it's actually, again, like all these things, it's not quite true. It's not so black and white because of a few things. One is, um, I would say, the fourth jhana still, it still has happiness in it. It somehow still has happiness, but it's so almost like invisibly woven into the texture or, or, or impalpably almost woven into the texture. It's so subtle, it's implicit in it. Um, so it takes actually, it takes quite a while to even notice it, you know, that actually this is, and, and it makes sense because it was born out of happiness. If you go through the jhanas, this, this state was born out of happiness. It was born out of the happiness of the second jhana and the refined happiness of the third jhana. But it's not, it's not at all something you notice at first, really. Um, but I would say it's definitely there. And certainly, I- in the beginning sort of levels of the fourth jhana, it still has and it still should have what we might call the echoes or the embers of, of the third jhana's sukkha and peacefulness. 
and uh, that kind of really warm, gorgeous peacefulness. It's still kind of got the embers there. So that the beginning of the fourth jhana has the kind of echoes of that left over in the third jhana. And they're, again, subtle, subtle emotional uh, hues, colors uh, pervading this space, if you like. It also, I would say, uh, again, contradicting what I said earlier about the absence of emotion, it also, like all the jhanas, has metta in it, but again, it's hidden. The metta is hidden at this point. And I've always found it interesting, um, uh, the when the Buddha talks about right intention, which is the second um, factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, right intention or right thought, or... What other translations of that are there? Right resolve. Yeah, no, right view is the first one. Yeah, so right resolve, right thought, right intention. Yeah, okay, good. So what are those? What, what's r- what does the Buddha say what they are? Does anyone know? It's okay if you don't. Okay, I'll tell you. Um, he says, said, um, uh, the intention towards renunciation, the intention to or resolve towards non-ill will, and the intention the resolve towards non-cruelty. Now, technically, if you if you look at all the lists and all this business, and it, uh, ill will is the far enemy of metta, and cruelty is the far enemy of compassion. It's the opposite. So you think, well, why didn't he just say? Instead of saying non-ill will and non and non-cruelty, why don't you just say metta and compassion? And sometimes you'll hear it translated that way. Partly, I think he's saying that to allow the legitimacy and the space for this exactly this kind of state, the fourth jhana, something like that. And there's deep equanimity. There's metta pregnant in it, but it's it's a state of non-ill will. It's definitely a state of non-ill will. It's definitely a state of non-cruelty. So it's a subtle. Uh, just distinction in language that he's making that allows room for, in other words, for for these uh, things, metta and compassion, not to be foremost uh, all the time, which allows, as I said, space and room to explore states where everything goes quiet, apparently. Yet I would say there's metta wrapped in it. Um, there's another kind of secondary emotion uh, but I think I'll come back to that when we talk about the formless realms, the formless jhanas, because um, it, it also has that one. But anyway, so in some senses, or in th- it really feels like a, a pacification or absence of emotion. In other, in other ways, actually, it's, it's not quite accurate. Again, nothing's really as black and white as it appears. It's not quite accurate to say that. Um, I remember, and so, so you, several of you have shared, you know, sometimes there's certain images that arise, maybe very briefly or very much in the background that kind of either ignite a certain jhana or help you access the primary nimitta or, or, or even appear in a jhana, not as part of a discursive thought, but just as part of something that's kind of very subtly from the background supporting the whole thing, propping up the whole thing. Um, so the Buddha's image of being wrapped in a white cloth, I, I find actually that, for me, that was one of those. Or wrapped in a, it could even be a cloth of pure luminous stillness. Um, or, yeah, just wrapped in that, in that pure luminous stillness. 
Um, but there may be these images very, very much in the background, but still doing their work in this very kind of tinctural way that we talked about. It's a very, very subtle way. If I go too much in the into the image, then it becomes more like an imaginal thing. But they can be very, very much in the background. The primary imagery is still where where the attention is, but they're kind of somehow helping to consolidate and get deeper into the whole thing and the whole thing to get richer, uh, the, the primary limiter to get richer, right? not richer because there's more images. Um, one I used to have was um, lying, it's almost like the, the maybe because I like the image so much of this pond with the lotuses and, and so I, I used to get an image of um, kind of lying at the bottom of that pond and the sun coming, so imagine this clear clear uh, water, I don't know, 10, 20 feet deep, and I, I'm lying on the bottom of the pond and looking upwards at, at all this light, but there's a complete sort of um, rest in it. The mind is so not asleep, it's so alive, and it's so rested at the same time in this luminosity, so somehow, it wasn't it was something that just came, it was just like that lying and looking up and kind of totally open in that way um, to this to this light. And of course, yeah, I could breathe underwater, so. Um. <laughs> um, another one which completely doesn't uh, make rational sense was sort of, I, I would kind of feel sometimes like, or afterwards like, I would say to myself, I just feel completely hung out to dry, which doesn't, what the hell does that mean? I, I, and the, but the sort of image I would have afterwards was like as if I was hanging on a, a clothesline, like like you know, <laughs> with pegs on my arms and just hanging there, um, which doesn't even sound very comfortable. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, <laughs> what was that about? It was actually that there was the 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 the, the sort of complete satisfaction that started in the third jhana. It was like that was just ramped up beyond all sort of limits. There was like a, you couldn't have got any more completely wrung out, you know, wrung through and put through the washing machine of this just process and then just I'm done. <coughs> um, but anyway, these are very much second, very, very much secondary limiters. So they're just little things that can somehow help at times or give indications. Um, yeah, somewhere or other, I think it's in some commentary that talks about two levels of the set of the fourth jhana, and I I don't know what the two levels they're referring to are, but I could delineate two levels certain in two different ways, or maybe three levels. So, again, it doesn't really matter. But what matters is, uh, am I getting to know the territory? Am I getting familiar with the different ranges and and sort of substates uh, and textures of this whole space? So, in a way, uh, that um, yes, that that this thing about being hung out to dry, that peacefulness and kind of complete contentment that was there in the th at the beginning of the third jhana, and and the deepening echoes of the the warmth and tender peacefulness of the third jhana, they characterize, you could say, the beginning stages of the fourth jhana. Um, so like that, may, that may be one level we could talk about. But as it deepens, even those things begin to fade and they almost become indiscernible and there's just left this kind of purity, this pure, uh, pure stillness, pure non-movement, pure um, absence of solidity, free of solidity, 
pure presence, pure awareness, pure consciousness. There's a sense of purity there that's uh, very uh, beautiful. And that comes to predominate. Could also divide it another way into, again, like we divided the third jhana, that there's the stillness is here in the energy body size, but one might also, as it deepens, get a sense of a, a much larger realm of stillness. But again, as we said with the third jhana, the, fo the primary focus wants to be in the energy body size. I'm not yet going out there, that comes later. I'm not yet exploring the, the far reaches of this realm of stillness. I want to be primarily here for the um, fourth jhana to really consolidate and deepen and really uh, bathe in its milk. So, yeah, you could make three or two or this two or that two. It doesn't really matter. The the for me, it doesn't matter. I think the invitation, though, is again to to discern more, to get to really know uh, spaces inside out and get really familiar with them. So, how do we? How do? How does? How does it progress to the fourth jhana? How do we do that? Um, <coughs> well. Mostly through the maturing of the third jhana. That's uh, uh, over time, long-term maturing of the third jhana will just deliver the fourth jhana, it should, at some point. Um, eventually, how do we get to the fourth jhana? Well, the same way with all that mastery business, business. Eventually, it's just by subtle intention, through the familiarity of going to this space, this level, the fourth jhana, eventually. We just remember that stillness, remember that state, remember that um, beauty, and purity, and and it can come back, uh, just from the intention. What can help if if it's ready to mature, if it's maturing and just needs a little help, and sometimes you don't even need to do that little bit of nudging. But what can help is noticing within the third jhana, noticing and tuning to, um, well, let's say two things: the stillness and equanimity in the third jhana. So. Third jhana has peacefulness, but as I said, it also has a lot of stillness in it. It's not completely still, but if I tune to the element or the feeling or the sense of, of still, the frequency of stillness in it, again, that's going to stand out and it may, it may help the whole thing deepen because what I tune to gets amplified, and in this case, the amplification is a deepening. So the still tuning to the stillness, uh, noticing and then tuning to, really tuning to the stillness or equanimity in the third jhana, and or uh, noticing and tuning to whatever whatever the most refined frequency is in the third jhana. Because again, as we move from jhana to jhana, there's a uh, an inc there should be an increase in refinement. So tuning to what's most refined this is a general principle now, not just applies to this will help me help me um, take me to the next level and and the stillness of the fourth jhana will begin to emerge I I would say again that and a bit like what we said with the third jhana the fourth jhana will will be better it will feel better more compelling more clear more clearly discriminated more fulfilling and all that um, when it actually has within it and you can feel within it some of that, um, profound and beautiful, uh, tender gentleness um, that goes with the third jhana. So when you f when 
in other words, the beginnings of the fourth jhana, when, when they have that kind of experience, that usually ends up being a much richer fourth jhana experience, even if later on they, they kind of refine out. And they can get subtler and subtler, uh, and, then, and then they, so they get kind of purified out. And so there's this luminous stillness, and you can play with uh, same things really, opening, opening the body and opening the mind to it, you know, opening, abandoning, surrendering, or penetrating, same modes of attention. Or you can think about dissolving, which I think I mentioned before, but somehow at this level it gets really, really potent, This for me, this word, dissolving. What would it be to dissolve my body into this into this luminous, beautiful stillness. Dissolve my body into it. The body becomes that, but the body also just dissolves in it. Uh, so there's a movement of, of intention there. There's a direction there. And again, just as in the third jhana, we said sometimes there can be a kind of felt sense of um, bifurcating or splitting between the mind and the body a little bit just subtly, um, it, it might, you know, again, at first, um, it's it body and mind totally integrated, they're just really into it, and then, and then with a lot of fourth jhana experience, sometimes you can feel like, oh, body and mind, and then dissolving my body, and other times dissolve my mind. What is it to dissolve the mind into, into this luminous stillness, and to play with that kind of attention, I- intention? So at times those feel like separate intentions, separate processes. Ideally, they're one, but it doesn't matter. This is again, we're, we're getting out of this thinking of a jhana is a very neat, defined black and white on-off switch uh, or a box, and it's more just territory here. And okay, now now I, I dissolve my body, and then I dissolve my mind. Doesn't matter if they're separate. It's all part. Jhana jhana practice is a broader thing. Yeah rather than worrying about those edges of, is this it, is it not it, is it right, is it wrong? Um, but it, like always, we want to really penetrate and really get intimate, really get inside and intimate with this luminous stillness. And remembering the primary, um, the primary nimitta is this, this purity of refined stillness. When one, the funny thing can happen, you might have witnessed either experienced this or witnessed other people, um, uh, sometimes in the fourth jhana, what can be quite common is a kind of leaning forward. The physical body actually starts leaning forward. And this can be, I don't know how common this is, um, uh, actually leaning forward, and it can be really, really extreme, so that someone sitting cross-legged on the floor actually ends up with their forehead on the floor. And someone might think, oh, they're fast asleep. Or, or they see them kind of going like this, and they think they're far, far from it. So the nodding looks very different and feels very different. You can tell the difference <laughs> between these things. That they're quite, uh, they, they both involve a leaning forward. They're, they're really quite different phenomena. Um, so Ajahn Mahabua was one of the great, he died not that long ago, in fact, one of the great 20th century Thai forest meditation masters. And he used to say, in relation to this leaning forward, don't don't alter it uh, don't alter it at all don't mess with it the process is happening you let it happen and if your forehead ends up on the floor you let it end up on the floor 
um, I had a teacher who said, as soon as you start noticing that happening, stop it and just make sure you can sit upright. So there's differences of opinions. Um, I have, I admit, over the years gotten into what I, I wouldn't call it a bad habit, a habit that I slightly regret. So I do lean forward and sometimes, yeah, quite, quite a lot. Um, it would, uh, looking back, it would have been better had I nipped that, that habit in the bud and uh, not allowed it to, to develop because it can be a little distracting um, as things go on. But it's certainly not a tragedy. However, I'm saying this now so that if you encounter it, you can perhaps nip it in the bud and um, make an intention to sit upright, stop it when, it when it's happening. But even if it does happen, you can s sometimes you can just very gently sit up, keeping the, the meditation going. Um, what's happening here? Uh, so I don't know. I've I'm not sure percentage-wise how common this is, but it's really not uncommon. Um <coughs> is it that we're conceiving of our attention as something that operates forwards? And so the stillness is in front of us, and we generally conceive of our attention. I know I can hear something back there, but because the eyes go that way, and the nose is there, and the mouth is there, the sense organs there, they're in the head, and they're kind of pointing that way. So, um, Is it that we just habitually conceive of our attention going forwards? And then we conceive of the stillness primarily in front of us, and 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 that's why we're leaning forwards. So, do you remember? You can play with a few things here, uh, and it is. I think I think it's worth trying to nip this in the bud if it starts to come up for you. But you can play with a few things, um, almost like imagining. Imagine the stillness 360 degrees, like, like the Buddha's analogy, wrapped, wrapped around the body. So it's 360 degrees around. It's a scaffolding of stillness, almost, that's right around the body space that's keeping it upright because there's as much support or there's as much presence of the scaffolding in front as behind as to the sides. And so playing with that 360 degrees prevents us from kind of a habit of feeling and sensing um, objects in the mind being somewhat in front of us. Um, and then in a way my attention is pulled equally, equanimously, um, in all the different directions. And there's maybe less chance of, of uh, falling over forwards. Remember when we, when we on the opening evening when I introduced the counting the, the with the breath and actually said play with it behind. Um, getting used to playing with or breathing in from the back, getting used to turning around uh, in physical space, 180 degrees, the, the sense of where we're paying attention and which direction the attention moves in can bear um, significant fruits later on when it, when it comes to something like this. So it could be something like that. It could also be at this point, I, I don't know, I've never really talked to anyone about this, um, it could also be that what starts to happen at this level is a significant uh, degree of unfabricating is happening. So we've talked a little bit about that. Some of you are very familiar with this teaching, but it's related to what I said about equanimity. As we let go of more and more clinging in the moment, there's less and less push and pull, less and less clinging, then we talked about the Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, are actually fabricated less. 
fabricate less and less and less and less. So there's a less, more and more unfabricating, less and less fabricating of what? Well, of self, but also in this case of perception and sensation. Less and less and less, until at certain points the sensations don't even arise. Less and less and less. And there's more unfabricating. There's quite a degree of unfabricating at this point, in, in the point of the fourth jhana. Unfabricating is quite a degree of uh, deconstructing or non-constructing going on. So sometimes I wonder, is this sort of falling over just a kind of reflection in the body of the kind of unfabricating that's going on? There's less construction. Because it also happens, well actually it also happens for me sometimes, and again, it's a habit that if I could go back I would, I would change, but um, it can also, uh, can occur, uh, when you're deep in insight ways of looking, and they're they're working primarily with this unfabricating, working with deeply letting go, and a similar sort of thing happens. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure, um, but it's worth, yeah, it's worth knowing about and and working with. It's part of the territory potentially here, and uh, it may be something that comes to bother you. If if you don't nip it in the bud, or it may be like, I don't think it's I don't think it's that much of a uh, an issue for me. But for some people, they feel like oh, I really wish, etc. Um, probably more significant thing to look out for even um, is that <coughs> again after many experiences going in and out of the fourth jhan and getting used to it. Um, you remember what I said about a dam bursting when you reach a new level and it's just like, wow, it's just happening, I don't have to do anything, it's just perfect as it is. And then after a while it's like, ah, now, now some more subtle work on play, uh, I, I see the need for that and the potential for that. So one thing that can happen, a, a kind of problem that emerges after quite a lot of experience going in and out of the fourth jhana, is that sometimes one's there and it's it's very nice. It's very still. The mind is definitely very mindful, very equanimous, very very focused. But it's just it's just a fraction dull. Okay. So there's no nodding. There's no none none of that. We're talking the whole thing's much much more subtle. Um, it's very subtly, very slightly dull. At times, and this actually is an important thing to to notice, to look out for, and notice. It's still a state of equanimity, of mindfulness, of clear awareness, and all, all the rest of it, of focus, of samadhi, blah, blah blah. But it just relatively to what it could be, it's just a little bit dull, and that's a really important thing to take note of. To notice, ah, well it's just gone into that slight dullness, and um, can I uh, ramp up in this moment the sense of presence? So just turn up the sense of presence. I'm present to this primary nimitta, to this stillness. This, there's a presence there, a real aliveness of presence. One of the ways you can do this is just is is really come into the sense of now, now, now. It's now. This this thing is is now. This stillness is now, and really come sharply into the sense of now with presence. It's, saying, it's two ways of saying the same thing, and that allows it to become brighter and and more alive, etc. Okay, there's, a, there's many instances, like I said, the Buddha talks about the jhanas a lot in the Pali Canon, and there's some instances where he sort of does it 
um, in a certain formula, another instance where he does it in another formula, another instance where in a third kind of formula or way of explaining. And so one, one of these sort of stock, almost contrived formulas is um, he's, he goes through the first four jhanas and he describes them as we've just described them. And then he says, then the practitioner, uh, then the, the monk, he's usually talking about monks, uh, um, he says, so ewam samahite chite, which means something like um, uh, he, the, the monk, with a chitta, with a mind heart, with an awareness, samahite, uh, thus, thus meaning from the, the jhanas, um, usual translation you'll hear is concentrated, but actually it means samadified. Okay. Partly why I'm wanting to dwell, and he goes through a whole list. So what he's going to do is go through a whole list describing what the practitioner has got <coughs> from their practice of the jhanas, of the first four jhanas, and then describing what they then do with that, how they put that mind to work. And, and there's different formulas and different contexts depending on who he's talking to and what he's describing. But what's often translated, for example, so first four jhanas and then and and then the practitioner with a chitta thus with a mind thus concentrated. So I'm just wanting to point out, we've dwelt on this a number of times. What's what's the difference if we translate samadhi as concentration or we leave it as samadhi? We talked about this, right? So to me, samadhi is the richer word, and I don't get I don't get narrow into that view of what because it's very easy to read these texts and take certain conclusions. And I want to actually take the bother to take the time going through this and hear and, and kind of indicate how we can read these passages and the translations of these passages and just assume it means with a mind very concentrated and very stuck, uh, very able to stay steady with one thing and very uh, like a laser beam. So all these words, are very easy to hear that way. I'm going to bother to go through the Pali and actually see, well, there's different ways we can uh, open this out. So that's the first one. With a chitta, with a mind, thus samadified, thus harmonized, in agreement. Yeah? It's, it, to me, it's got a whole different uh, range of and richness of what's involved there, rather than just concentrated. Um, then he said, so with a mind thus samadified, and then he goes on other adjectives, with a mind thus, not just samadified, but parisudde, which means purified. What, do, what might that mean? Purified. Purified of what? Okay, but that should have come with the first jhana. Yeah, so of Vedana, hindrances, it could, it could mean all kinds of things. I think what I'm pointing to is how, partly what I want to point to is how easy it is to read these texts and read them like when we listen to Dharma talks and listen already programmed or read already programmed to hear a certain narrow range of meaning which is not necessarily there. Um, it could be also purified of relative grossness. Yeah, you know, when you refine something. So it, I just want to open up yeah, so yes, hindrances, subtle hindrances, yes, pleasure and pain, yes, relative grossness. So in other words, what is happening, because this is the point, okay, the Buddha's gone through the first four jhanas, and then he's like explaining to someone other what the point of it is. 
So again, we go back to this, this whole question. We started the retreat so much talking about what's the point of this? What, what, why are we doing this? What are we going to emphasize? What's important here? Right? Coming back to that. So it could be purified of, who knows, but could be purified of grossness, of subtle hindrances, of pleasure, pain. Um, but then he repeats this, parisudde pariodate, which actually also means pure. Um, it also means, this word pariodate, also means um, very clever, <laughs> or excellent, or accomplished. So, uh, and sometimes it's translated as bright, and in English that word has that bright, oh, she's, a, she's very bright, or, um, so it has a kind of a- ambiguous range of meaning. Um, and as I said, there is this sense of visual luminosity there, um, but that's really a kind of brightness of presence. And when we talk about a bright person, it's also that they're bright in presence. It's not just that they're kind of very good at doing Rubik's Cube or whatever. Um, uh, the mind is bright with presence, but also bright with possibility. Like when we talk about so-and-so is bright, it's like there's, th- there's possibility there. Um, so this translation of bright uh, is, is, as I said, a very pure realm of still light, it's un, un, you know, the purity, though, is interesting if we, if we linger on this word, because it's also related to the stillness. In other words, the stillness itself is something pure. Um, purity of push-pull, purity of equanimity. So, again, just expanding on the possible meanings. When you say a person has a really pure character, it's like saying they have a lot of integrity, which is also like saying they can't be bribed by something pleasant or blackmailed by the threat of something unpleasant. Do you understand? So there's a kind of, the purity could refer to something like that. It's about how is the mind in its poise right now in relation to the threat and the dangling carrot of, of uh, unpleasant and pleasant. Do you understand? So opening up meanings, not, it's so easy to hear and read and just hear and read what we already know, or what we've already been told. So in fact, that's the most common way, unfortunately, for human beings to hear and read. It's just to hear and read what we what we already know. Um, and and as I said, it could also be purity of refinement. So if you think about something like gold, you you mine gold or you whatever they do, gather it, mine it, and it's it's got other stuff in it. And so p- to purify gold is also to refine gold. It becomes so all these things, it's like the mind is getting down to something of its pure, in, in nearer, let's say, to its pure natural nature. So words like pure, you know, they can, they can mean a lot of different things. And in a way, I, thi- I think it's pregnant with all those meanings, and it should be, rather than bringing it down. Because then he says, and now he's still a lot of adjectives describing this, this mind after the meditation, after the fourth jhana. Anangana, which is something like passionless or blameless, or unblemished. And vigatu pakilesa, which means something like um, uh, free or without without defilements or obstructions. Mudubute, which means malleable, malleable, pliant, supple. Later, there's passages where he does, he does the same description, and he really picks up on that one. And he says, like a goldsmith, 
when they've got this substance, now they've got their gold, uh, molten gold, then they can shape it however they like. Malleable, malleable, malleable. And that may be one of, is in my view, one of the really centrally important uh, uh, fruits of all this. Stressed it at the beginning of the retreat, right? Malleability. That one of the fruits of jhana, one of the main fruits of jhana practice is the malleability of perception. So it's it's here now. Kamanie, which means workable, able to be put or to work or directed in work in a certain way. Um, tite, which means steady. And then the last one, aninjapate, um, which means attained to imperturbability. Um, very easy, I think, to hear that or read that in that context and just read it very quickly and think, yeah, it means the mind is now absolutely nailed to its object. It doesn't move. It's imperturbable. But does it only point to that? Might it also point, again, um, to equanimity, which we've been talking about, and the quietening of the push and pull. Push and pull throws the mind out of balance, right? You're exerting a thought, you're pulled by something or trying to hang on to something or pushing something away. It throws the mind out of balance. And so it could be that the imperturbability really refers um, or refers as well, or maybe even refers principally to uh, less to a kind of, you know, complete, ability to fix the mind's attention on something unwaveringly and more to this capacity not to be um, swayed. It's steady, it's unshakable, it's imperturbable. I'm not swayed by my reactivity to any phenomenon, pleasant, unpleasant or otherwise, maybe. But really the, the point here is again, just to point, it's an illustration in a much larger context of how, how very easily we can hear and read and just basically hear and read what we already know and we're learning very little new. Uh, things are not being opened up or challenged. Um, and in this particular case, to open up the view and it's related to what are we doing here? What's, why are we doing this? And therefore what's important of all the different things that are going on when we practice samadhi and all of all the different things that we could emphasize. And again, how much what we emphasize, how much the big picture view will end up um, directing us consciously or unconsciously, wisely or unwisely, in terms of our micro moment-to-moment choices, right? I've said that like five times already, so I'm just repeating. And then he says, chittam apinirati, I think, and um, apininat, I can't read my writing, apininameti, which just basically directs or applies the chitta inclines or bends the chitta towards and then he gives a whole a whole bunch of things that you can then do with the mind or direct your awareness to um and and one of them is vipassana practice or certain kinds of vipassana practice um i want to point something else out about that sutta so here he is he's speaking he's explaining to someone this person or that person it's a kind of contrived educational situation, a contrived formula in a way. He goes through the first four jhanas, he gives the stock descriptions, and then he gives this whole list of, and thus the monk with the mind, thus 
and thus does this and this and this and this. The whole thing is a very stock contrived formula. Um, but to me, it's like not to get too, and I'll come back to this as we go on, not to get misled by that contrived formula. Uh, it's actually see the sutta in context that it is a contrived formula. It's a kind of educational heuristic technique he's doing. It doesn't then mean that we should then do jhana 1, followed by jhana 2, followed by jhana 3, followed by jhana 4, and then we decide, okay, I'm now I'm going to do this. Okay. It's very, again, it's very easy to read um, and, and to read a sutta like that and just take it, kind of not really understanding it as a heuristic tool, as an educational tool. It's a, it's a contrived formula. It doesn't mean that that's how we meditate. And, and, but there are some people who would teach that way because it says, well, one, two, three, four, and then you do this. And then you do your vipassana or whatever. And there may be other situations where it says one, two, three, up to eight. And then you do your vipassana. But these are just... Do you understand what I mean by contrived? It's not really, it's not really uh, um, a, a strict uh, instruction for practice. Okay. A um, couple of things. So, um, if any of you or anyone, any of your future selves or anyone listening to this anywhere at any time. If ever you decide that y you you would like to really, if ever you find that you would really like to get deep into jhana practice and you find yourself in that territory and you want to devote some time uh, uh, to it, um, jhanas and how they work with insight so, so beautifully and fertilely. Um, once you got to this stage, it can be really, really helpful, I think, to almost make the... I know a monk who teaches, make the fourth jhana your base. It's Ajahn Lee, Ajahn Dhammadara is one of my, my, one of my teachers, teacher's teacher. It's a famous monk uh, from the mid-20th mid century in Thailand, a Thai forest monk. He said, make the fourth jhana your base. It's like it's a, it's a hub, and, and from there you can go to lots of places. And it's this, it's this place of very bright, very steady, um, but kind of not very warm, uh, awareness and, and consciousness. I would like to say, make the third and fourth jhana your base. If you ever get to that level of practice and you decide you're really into this, uh, make the third and fourth. Because the third has uh, such a lovely, warm, healing kind of um, space. It's such a lovely, warm, healing space. So you can make the third and fourth your base and kind of then venture out backwards in the jhanas, forwards in the jhanas to different insight practices. And that becomes kind of home base. Um, but having said that, you know, as I said, this is just some of you will never want to do that. And, and, and you should never feel that you should do that. Um, you don't have to develop jhanas to that degree. You don't have to develop jhanas to any degree. Um, Sometimes people say, I need the jhanas, I need the jhanas, or, or just because I've emphasized something or they've heard someone, I need the jhanas to get insight. I don't think it's true. There is a passage where the Buddha says, without jhana there's no liberation. Without jhana there's no insight, without insight there's no liberation. But I, I'm not sure. Um, or you might have heard me s kind of say something. Sometimes what I say is just in a context, and certainly 
where are we now? It's like more than 10 years ago when I first started talking in, in, uh, in here in public talks about jhanas. You know, the context was much more anti-jhana and much more dismissive and poo-pooing and thinking they were a ridiculous waste of time or a dead end or dangerous. So, so, so teaching is in a context, so I might really pump up and say just how important they are, but you don't need the jhanas. And sometimes people think, oh, I emphasize their healing qualities. The person, I, I need the jhanas to heal. You, you, you probably don't. They, are, they can be very healing, but it's very rare, I think, that someone actually needs the jhanas to heal and they couldn't heal in some other way, whatever it is that they're wanting to heal. Um, however, having said that, the way, I would say, the way we're emphasizing, the ways we're emphasizing working on this retreat, what you may need to heal, much more than the jhana itself, is some of, the, some of what we've been emphasizing in the way of working. So for instance, when we talk about opening and really opening and really abandoning and really surrendering, that may be much more significant in a person's healing than the attainment of this or that jhana. Because that person may not be, uh, may have, for lots of different reasons, actually quite a limited ability to really open, or they think they're really opening, actually it's only halfway, or whatever, or to be really wholehearted. These things, um, I, I would say, and whether it comes, however it comes, they, uh, they may be necessary. I think it's probably rare that an actual jhana, it may be possible, an actual jhana is, is necessary and there's nothing else that would give that kind of healing for a certain person. But to be able to open as a human being, I mean really open, and open the energy body and open, open, like this, that may well be quite significant because uh, it has to do with much more than the attainment of a state in meditation. It has to do with one's... Um, relationship with life and existence and relationship with others and all kinds of things, sexuality, all, all kinds of things. Um, do you remember we talked about the cooking ingredients? Yeah. So similar thing, here if you're in the fourth jhana and you want to go to the third jhana, what do I need to grab from the shelf and add? Yeah, sukkah. I just reach for my sukkah uh, and I pour in the sukkah and fourth jhana plus sukkah will should, should deliver you to the third jhana. Um, so a handy trick, but again, part of, part of the art of uh, the art of all this and also just the malleability of perception and the art of, of, of playing with perception. I think I mentioned this already, but it's worth it's worth stating again. So, um, <coughs> over it's probably over time. It's probably not just one or two experiences, but probably over more repeated experiences with um, the third and fourth jhana and and the deeper jhanas, like jhanas from three onwards. Um, their increased refinement, their uh, uh, actually then. Re not retroactively so much as when you come back to the piti and the first jhana, they will usually um, have the effect of, of, of refining the piti in the first jhana. 
um, it, uh, actually calming it, that's one thing, and then maybe refining it as well, but ca calming it definitely, and but also refining it. So when you go to these other jhanas, probably repeatedly, and then come back, it's like your sense of what the first jhana is begins to change. And again, that's part of why, why the post-it notes. And that may happen with, with other jhanas, with the sukkha, etc. Um, so I don't need to repeat this, but just to include it, um, so that all the business about mastery goes, goes here as well. So of all the things, all the elements of mastery, you can play with them here. They're, they're just the same. You know, ability to sustain, ability to summon at will, ability to ping pong, ability to go for walk, walks outside, etc. Um, all, all the rest of it. There's because you now you've got more more jhanas to play with at this point. There's increased leapfrog ping pong permutation possibilities. Right, you can be jumping all over and practice that. And again, once you get to this point, you want to be practicing a little bit at the end, just having some fun at the end of sittings, sort of moving around and seeing how rapidly you can move. But but mostly you want to be marinating and really marinating this. It does something very. Uh, again profound to the to the consciousness to the being okay good let's have some quiet together <coughs>
you everyone, and um, time for tea. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.